millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of 10 News First Person contains material relating to domestic violence. If domestic violence is an issue in your life, please contact the National Counseling Service 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732. Pamela Young was just 18 when she decided she wanted to become a police officer. I wanted the excitement. I wanted the indoor-outdoor living I wanted to pit myself in a challenging environment um, and see what I see what I could do. Fast forward to now, and Pamela is a former detective chief inspector with New South Wales Police, having overseen murder and drug cases, and having witnessed many horrible things at crime scenes. One case has always sat not far from the front of her mind, though. Leah Harris has a story. In the early 1980s, the country was rocked by a series of violent attacks in Sydney, almost all of them targeting the family court. But two of them were only linked to the others by one man, a domestic terrorist who had all involved in our justice system and many in the wider community living in fear. The reign of terror began on June 23, 1980, when family court judge David Opas was shot dead by an unknown gunman as he answered the doorbell at his Wallara family home. Almost four years later, on March 6, 1984, a bomb exploded on the front doorstep of another family court judge, Justice Richard G, which injured him and his two children. That came a month after explosives were stolen from a Sydney quarry, along with detonators and fuses taken from another site. A month after that, in April 1984, another bomb, this time detonated outside the family court itself in Parramatta. The facade of the building was extensively damaged, but thankfully no one was injured. Then in July 1984, another family court judge, Justice Ray Watson, was targeted. A bomb was left on the doorstep of his Greenwich family home, set to explode when he left for work. But it was his wife, Pearl, who opened the door and triggered the bomb. She was killed instantly. The next attack was five months later, in February 1985, when a bomb with enough explosives to destroy an entire building and everyone in it was placed in a car outside the former home of lawyer Gary Watts. However, he had recently moved and the car actually belonged to the current tenant who narrowly avoided death. He discovered the bomb before it exploded and called police. And finally, on July 29, 1985, a bomb planted beneath the podium of the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall in Kusula exploded. 
while dozens of members of the congregation were gathered. The man sitting in the front row, directly in front of the podium, Graham Wicks, was killed. 71 others were hospitalised, including 16 children and five babies. 13 of them were severely injured in the blast. The attacks then mysteriously stopped at this point. However, police would later come to believe all of those attacks were also connected to another murder which preceded them all. A man named Stephen Blanchard, who was shot as he slept in his father's home in February 1980. His body was later found in a creek in the Karingai Chase National Park, weighed down with bricks. One of the very first tasks given to Pamela Young after she joined the police force was to act as a guard at the homes of family court judges during the time of the attacks. Nobody knew who might be targeted next, so the judges needed 24-hour protection. Yes, so it was one of my first jobs and it's um, I've been reflecting a lot on how weird it is that it was my last job as well. <laughs> so, um, and not a... Not a, not a um, Unfortunate weird. I quite like the harmony of that happening. Uh, so I still remember a sense of just being put put to stand somewhere in the dark uh, with um, large houses behind hedges on the North Shore. I don't think I worked any other area but that. I remember not knowing really or having any sense that the people inside were in danger. I didn't really know what danger was then, but I, I did my job. I followed my orders. I did my did my job. So you knew you knew why you were there, though. You knew why they were being protected. Yes, yes, I knew there were judges and uh, that that there was a threat. Uh, when I think now the scale, because uh, not knowing who's doing the crimes, all the judges were in fear, and all the judges had to be protected. In 2013, 30 years after she helped protect family court judges from the person responsible as a young cop, now Detective Chief Inspector Pamela Young led a team of detectives at the New South Wales Unsolved Homicide Squad that picked up the case of the family court bombings, which had remained unsolved for decades. It was the tenacious detective work of she and her dedicated team that would eventually lead to the arrest of Leonard John Warwick who was charged with all seven bombings and murders between 1980 and 1985. He was ultimately convicted of six and acquitted of the murder of Stephen Blanchard. Warwick has always maintained his innocence and intends to appeal his convictions for all charges. You were obviously a very young cop when this was all happening, but then later on took over the case. What, From what you know now, why do you think it went so long without being solved? I really appreciate and acknowledge the huge efforts and the huge number of investigators and specialists, which included federal police, uh, our, our own state specialists and the leadership. I really acknowledged that and it did result in 100 and 
50 archive boxes of material. But I have to say that they didn't maximise on the material that they had and they didn't maximise on the material and the witnesses that they could have had. That troubles me and it actually makes me a bit sad because they had the capacity. Uh, so it's that too. There are two sides to that. Mm. It's a. have been back and forth about exactly how to tell the story because it's one of those things where you come into it so late in the story but it's also, you know, there's a lot that came before you took it over and then explaining the story without knowing that it's Warwick and then you figure out obviously that it is Warwick. Mm. But even before you took it over, Warwick had been a suspect. Yes, one of the suspects tucked away in the 150 archive boxes, definitely, and a primary focus of theirs. Uh, they, they, they had a sense of him. They had, they're on, onto him. They had a smell that he was the man. The Family Court bombings was a campaign of terror and violence not seen before in Australia. But at its genesis was a crime that is all too common, domestic violence. Leonard John Warwick marries Andrea Blanchard. Yes, they'd met by mutual friends and dated for about four years. Um, And then in October 1974, a 22-year-old Andrea Blanchard married 27-year-old Leonard John Warwick. Warwick had been raised near Wollongong and his mother died when he was very young. He bears the same name as his coal mining father. Interestingly, his father was the only guest on his side at the wedding and also performed the role as his best man. Uh, They buy a home together, their um, matrimonial home together in Kasula, and in 1978 they have a daughter, Trudy. At the wedding, Warwick has only one guest, which is his father. Mm. No friends, no other family. No, and at 27 he had, um, I think he'd left school at 14. He'd had some casual jobs on farms. I think one was mushroom farm, if I got that right. I think he did a bit of work, casual stuff with his dad. Uh, He'd been conscripted into the army at 20. And I think he stayed for about two years and then he also um, he joined the fire brigade, as, as we know. So by the time he was 27, you might have thought he had collected some friends, close or otherwise, but uh, doesn't appear any of them were available for the wedding, or perhaps he didn't have any. In hindsight, it says a lot about him as a person. I, I believe it does. I believe... It's a red flag. So they got married. They had a daughter named Trudy. And then things started to go south, for want of a better word. Well, even before they married, Andrea has told us that there was domestic violence. Um, He would be physically violent to her and emotionally violent to her. But um, the wedding occurred anyway. Red flag, red flag, red flag for anyone who's out there in that situation. And the violence continued after the wedding, of course, as it always will 
again, if anyone's listening, who's wondering about that in their own relationship. And it got more and more severe. Um, Andrea lived in fear, would you say? Uh, Terror, I would put it at that height. She would have Warwick break into her homes, including when she first moved out to live back with her in her family home with her father, Leslie. And um, Warwick would turn up, break in, grab Trudy, bash Andrea. Her father, Leslie, did all he could to protect her, but no one can be there all the time. So Andrea was fearful and beyond fearful. She was in terror. What are some of the things that she did to try and have some sort of freedom or relief from him? She tried to get out of the his control, which was physical control, actually locking her in the marital home at Kasula. He would lock her in and, of course, not give her the key. She is very clever and she did think to sneak the key one day and she made an impression in a cake of soap and on the rare occasion she was had some time to herself she did get a key cutter who we should all be eternally grateful for to cut a key that worked on her own home so she still didn't tell Warwick but she would sneak out when he was at work and she would go and perhaps visit her sister Judy, for instance, as normal people would do. So whilst her terror was real and constant, you always have already have a sense of her as being a fighter that she would at some stage research. Which she did. Which she did. What point did she decide she needed to leave him? So as a result of all that violence, Andrea permanently left Warwick and the marital home at Kusula in March of 1979. Andrea finally decided to leave Warwick. She's got a baby daughter, Trudy, um, and the custody battle began. We know now that that is what prompted the attacks that followed. However, at the time, no one knew who was actually committing these attacks, but suffice to say, they entered the family court system custody battle over the the baby as well as the the properties. Yes, and the fight was because Warwick, as the psychopath that he is, had marked his territory. And his territory were his possessions. So his possessions were Andrea, but particularly Trudy, the daughter, and particularly the house at Kusula, and even the car that they shared, the one car that they had. So he'd marked his territory and the battle was on. So Andrea leaves Warwick and where does she go? Andrea did what a lot of uh, women do and, and people who have broken marriages. I know I've done it myself. You run back to your family home where your parents are. Andrea had her father Leslie and he took her in with open arms and gave her all the protection he possibly could. It's interesting that in and it was in a statement he gave to the original investigating police, I think it was in 1980, when he told them that um, he'd confronted Warwick when Warwick had climbed through a window of his house. 
So Leslie confronted Warwick with a, a lump of wood. He felt that threatened himself. And Warwick said to him that he'd come back with his guns and fix him. And that's a statement Leslie made to the police. Also there in the, that house, that family house at Reevesby, was Andrea's younger brother, Stephen, a keen surfer. He also had a, a job, so he contributed to the household. She turned to both of them to, to help her, as she did with her, her sisters. The way Stephen had helped his sister Andrea was one of the many occasions when Warwick kept Trudy longer than they had agreed, because Andrea was allowing access, as um, a reasonable mother would, and uh, he, he'd kept Trudy and Andrea asked Stephen to drive her to what was also her house at Kasula. Andrea tried to talk to Warwick through the door. He, he wouldn't let her in, and, and Stephen approached Warwick and said, look, all we want is, is to um, have Trudy back with her mum like you agreed. And Warwick's been dismissive of him. So for a young guy who just wants to go surfing he you know he was doing the right thing and how long was she staying there before the tragic attack happened uh well she was she was there at the time she was mm -hmm. living there Stephen was shot in that house where she had gone for protection but the Blanchard family was crushed by that event, as any family would be. Stephen's body was later found far away from the house. Someone had shot him and, and taken his body outside of the house. Yes, we have forensic evidence that suggested Stephen was shot inside the house, in his bedroom, and that someone had forced entry or, or climbed through a window to do that. Uh, his body then was removed and found about just one hour drive north of Reesby, weighed down with house bricks. I certainly had my suspicions that Warwick had shot Stephen dead. Uh, that was based on uh, his access to guns and his threats to use them, based on his terrorising efforts to make Andrea back away from any family court proceedings. And I suspected Warwick so much of Stephen's murder that I had him charged with Stephen's murder. And evidence about that was um, exorcised at that marathon trial that everyone's been through. But at the end of the day, uh, the very wise... Justice Garling clearly found a reasonable doubt that Warwick had murdered Stephen. And, of course, uh, we, we accept that. That's exactly the, the highest authority to make those decisions. But what I, I would say, and I don't say it to harm or diminish Stephen's death, but... It really was his death that brought the spotlight onto Warwick because the police then found that Warwick's 
hostilities towards Andrea through their family law court proceedings. That focus really came because Stephen had been shot in the house where Andrea lived with Trudy. So whilst, of course, Warwick is now found not guilty of that, that murder, uh, really Stephen's murder helped us so much to, to land Warwick in the end. So Stephen really has a special place in Andrea's life for that final protection he has given her and setting her free to have a life. And I, I've always wanted to acknowledge that and, and as does my team. When Stephen was murdered, obviously you, you weren't involved then, but did Andrea and her father suspect it was Warwick? Yes, they did. And that must have been terrifying for her. Terror upon terror, yes. Despite the brutal murder of her brother and her suspicions her estranged husband was responsible, Andrea pushed ahead with the family court battle to free herself and her baby daughter from Leonard John Warwick. But the attacks on those who hindered Warwick's control over her and Trudy had only just begun. Justice Opas was the first judge to meet Warwick. They met for the first time in Justice Opas's court on uh, the 30th of April, 1979. Now, Warwick was particularly uh, disobedient when it came to the court and the process, the court orders, um, even the appearances in court. And Justice Opas was the first to hint at any reprimand for that? Yes, Warwick was a real belligerent client and... Justice Opus, his instincts kicked in, uh, but also his expertise and professionalism. And he acknowledged that both parties were hostile towards each other because Andrea wasn't taking a backward step either and she had a fine number of lawyers fighting for her. But uh, Justice Opus got very impatient with uh, Warwick over his disregard for anything that Justice Opus asked him to do, including when Justice Opus put orders in place for certain access or property splits. And it came to a point where Justice Opus said to Warwick, don't toy with me and words to the effect of, and and next time, maybe you should bring your toothbrush. And that is a clear indication that he had in mind that he could very well send Warwick to jail for contempt of court. So imagine being a psychopath who thinks that you're the only important person in the universe, more important more significant, more entitled than anyone else, and a justice says that to you, 
in open court in front of people, including Andrea. Obviously doesn't go down well. That seems to be definitely um, Warwick's reaction to it, yeah. So after that, soon after that, what happened to Justice David Opas? The last occasion when Warwick was before Justice Opas was in May of 1980, and very significantly he made orders that they both needed to comply with, and the date that they had to comply by, the final date that they had to comply to Justice Opus's orders, was the 23rd of June, 1980. At 7 p.m. about then, on the 23rd of June, 1980, Justice Opas is at home having dinner with his wife and children. And he had taken some security precautions. He had a security gate at the front on the street. And the buzzer went during their dinner. And he gets up from his family and walks out out to the front of the house to the gate. And he's shot dead. And he falls in their courtyard for his wife and children to find. His family was home, but none of them saw who shot him. That's right, because they were finishing their dinner. They fully expected their husband and dad to be back with them. In the days following the murder of Justice Opas, Warwick's own solicitor stopped representing him, and he told the court that Warwick was becoming increasingly difficult to represent, and he would refuse to take any legal advice. But the wheels of justice kept turning. Those judges are so professional that they they kept hearing their matter and every other matter, and that that really is a a credit, of course, to such high-level professionals. With no witnesses able to identify who pulled the trigger, the murder of Justice Opas remained unsolved as the family court battle between Andrea and Leonard Warwick continued. The next attack came almost four years later. So Warwick and Andrea's family court battle went on for another few years after David Opus's murder, and then there was... It it went for nearly eight years from start to finish. That's an enormously exhausting Mm. process, isn't it? And you can, just on the length of it, you can see how it's got bogged down, and the bogging down was Warwick. The bogging down was not Andrea. The bogging down was not the court system. And that, from those 150 archive boxes, that's one of the first clear indications to us what those investigators did uh, around Warwick after Justice Opus's murder, uh, because they, for the, it was the first search warrant that they did on his home, and they found uh, government property, some uh, property that belonged to the uh, the fire brigade. And they charged him. Now, I'm not absolutely clear, but I have some recollection that it was toilet paper. And that caused us a bit of a laugh in the office. But of course, we realise that if they had found anything in Warwick's home related to a crime, larger crime or a murder, he certainly would have been charged with that. But what they've gained from that charge is control of him because they get to take him away 
to a police station and process him and then he has court dates to turn up on and uh, it gives them control to observe him, to surveil him, to come to understand him more. So the toilet paper served a purpose and he was actually convicted of it. So even at that point he was a suspect very early on? Very early on, very early on, but not alone. Again, and this is a challenge of uh, major crime investigations, Uh, there's always more than one suspect and you must, must, must look at all of them. A few years later, Andrea and Warwick in court this whole time and they come up in front of Justice Richard G. What was the interaction with him? I guess with Justice Opus, uh, the key to the conflict in that court was around possessions, most particularly the cot that Trudy was to sleep in and that Warwick had held on to and refused multiple times to let Andrea have, even though Trudy, of course, was staying with her mother more. Whereas for um, Justice G, the issues were around Andrea wanting a divorce and an increase in child maintenance, which was set at $20 a week then. They were the things that stuck in the craw of Warwick as he had dealings with Justice G. He thought he played a masterstroke against Justice G, the 5th of March 1981, and of course against Andrea, where he declares to the court formally that he intended to give notice that he would seek unrestricted access to Trudy. Unrestricted access to Trudy, so that the court or Andrea had no say in the matter at all. So you could see, you get a sense of this is escalating. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So Warwick centred a a different phase too of his behaviour in court. So he starts not turning up when Justice G had required him to. He starts walking out midstream and... Justice G said to Warwick at one stage, and think of a psychopath hearing this, Warwick was told by the justice, I will proceed as if you do not exist and deal with your wife's application. Is that clear? Those type of exchanges are not welcome by psychopaths. It's the last thing a psychopath wants to hear, I imagine, that he doesn't exist. Exactly, and to be put in his place in public, in public. So shortly after that, what happened to Justice Richard G? Justice G ramped up from his uh, position of authority in the court and he ordered that the marital home at Kasula be sold. And I think he, he determined that they should get half each, which sounds fair. He also increased uh, Warwick's uh, weekly maintenance payments by five dollars which of course we remember that was quite a bit then 
Warwick had snuck in and, and removed all of their joint savings f- from the bank. And Justice G also said, you must give your wife half of those savings. Justice G put everything in place possible to keep a balance between that couple who were still married. There are no more court records for us um, for the rest of 1981 and all of 1982. I think that's because Justice G had been so thorough and so prescriptive that there was an assumption that those orders would be uh, obeyed, would be complied with. The opposite happened. Andrea gained nothing that uh, Justice G hoped for her. And when we talk about Andrea, we mean, we mean Trudy as well. Supposedly this daughter that Warwick loved so much, he, he really wanted to have with him all the time. But of course, you know, she's not allowed to have any um, support to do that. He even started at, at that time, Warwick starts to uh, attempt to intimidate and, and bully the lawyers for Andrea. He approaches them in the in the vicinity of the the court grounds, and and bullies them, and they they feel so bullied and and observe him, what they they thought he was doing, writing down a registration plate number, which which relevantly was um, Gary Watts's vehicle, and they were so concerned that they've rung the the federal police to have their involvement. Why it's the federal police is, of course, family law court is federal law, not state law. So they were concerned enough about him to know that he could have been a genuine threat at that point? Not to the murder or murders that had occurred up to that stage, but a threat to the proceedings, a threat to them as individuals, a threat to Andrea. Uh, So they did the right thing by her. Because Warwick had been so non-compliant and hostile from their last appearance in court. In July of 1983, Justice G orders that Andrea gain full use of the house. He increases Andrea's potential property settlement. And he also orders that the federal police can help Andrea directly with preventing Warwick having increased access to Trudy and and or keeping Trudy for too long. That is quite a significant power, a forceful power to, to Andrea's benefit. So you can see Justice G is doing his very best in such a difficult situation. Having made those increased orders in Andrea's favour, the very next court date where Warwick was required to comply and appear before the court was on the 6th of March 1984. And at about 1.45am on that very day, a bomb which had been placed at the front of Justice G's home exploded. What an obvious link that is. And how could anyone have missed that in earlier times? Thankfully, Justice G and his family survived, but but they were injured. Can you talk about the damage that was done? Yes, yes. Justice G was taken to hospital with lacerations 
I don't think he had any fractures, uh, but he would have come close to, to getting them. His children, uh, their feet were all cut from glass, from running in fear and confusion about what happened. The house was effectively destroyed. I think there's a bit at the back that was left. And the neighbour's house was very much damaged as well. And I think the neighbour um, received some injuries, lacerations and the like. Uh, debris from the explosion landed 50 metres away. There was clear intent to murder Justice G. Amazing that everyone survived such a huge explosion. It is. Uh, the, the one thing I do know, do know about explosives, and I don't know much myself, I really had to give that area of expertise to one of my team, but it very much depends on how the bomb is packed as to where the main force will be generated. Upwards, outwards, left or right. He's actually a very unsophisticated bomb maker. Uh, and he didn't achieve what he hoped, and thank goodness for that. Mm. So just just to empathise with Andrea again, let's remember now this is five years down the track when she started these proceedings. Five five years in it, and it ain't finished yet of of the terror that she's in. With another judge targeted and no clear suspects or motives, fear was building for all involved in the family court and protection for all Sydney judges ramped up. So it gave him more confidence even, and he would break, he broke into Andrew's home again and, and took Trudy, took Trudy away forcibly. Now that's domestic violence, not just on Andrea, that's on Trudy. I do think Andrea was bashed on that occasion. Uh, that's my, my memory of it. I'm, I'm sure he would have taken advantage of that situation if he could. He felt pumped up by, by his... Uh, Success. The next target was an even more direct attack on the justice system. Judges are placed under protection around 1984, obviously when you yourself was one of those officers who was protecting judges. It wasn't long after that that there was another incident. Was there anything that preceded the next bomb significantly in terms of Warwick and Andrew's case? Yes, and uh, including that the hearing on the 6th of March 1984 that Justice G had proposed still went ahead, and it went ahead in front of Justice Watson, who I'm sure we'll be talking about soon. And again, it shows that, that professionalism and that preparedness to face their own fees by continuing to help the community through their court. A change of location for Warwick was when he chose to bomb the family law court at Parramatta, which of course is where all his justices sat. A bomb went off there at about 10.45pm on a Sunday night, so not a, a court sitting night day, and uh, that was on the 15th of April 1984. My view, relevant or not, is that Warwick had, he was in a phase of the proceedings being in front of Watson and other justices. And I think he didn't firm up on an individual to target. And of course, he saw the institution represented by that very building with very prominent Family Law Court of Australia script at the, 
at the front as his next target. He was such an amateur bomber, and I do say that to put him down, uh, because he couldn't time it to go off when court was open, thank God. Uh, and that's it did go off, in my view, earlier than he hoped. So you don't think, you think he meant it to go off and do a lot more damage to human life, but it went off earlier when no one was there by accident? Damaging human life is completely his style. I believe that absolutely he mistimed. But the damage extends all to the front, all to the facade, but the glass entrance doors and some internal damage. Despite being under siege and acutely aware her husband was likely behind all the carnage, Andrea fought on. The next judge to take on her case was Justice Ray Watson, another who paid an unimaginable price just for doing his job. Even after that, the bombing of the family law court building at Parramatta, of course, the legal processes keep going, the justices and all their staff keep turning up to do exactly what they're meant to do. And Warwick became very frustrated that these crimes, these huge, impactful, hateful crimes, slowed nothing down in relation to him. Nobody walked away from the responsibility they felt towards Andrea, including Andrea herself and including her lawyers, one of which was Gary Watts. So shortly after the Parramatta bombing, on the 4th of July 1984, a bomb is placed by Warwick near the door of Justice Watson's home, Justice Raymond Watson's home. And if my memory serves me correctly, at that stage, and I think it was security related, justices were being provided a car, a security car, to pick them up and take them to court. So in the morning, Mrs Pearl Watson, Justice Watson's wife, heard that the car had arrived. She went to the front door of their apartment, opened the door, and she's the one that was killed on that occasion. And I don't mean to disturb anyone who listens and absolutely not that family, but that blast was so strong that she was thrown back through a brick wall at the end of the hall of that building. She lost some limbs in that process, obviously. I I did say it's an apartment block. The bomber did not care less that it would also affect and possibly kill any number of other people in that apartment block. I think something like 90 kilograms of concrete and no doubt um, steel construction material fell into the apartment below Justice Watson's apartment. It's, it's shocking. Justice Watson was home at the time, but he yes. survived. He was, his, his wife was going to the door to no doubt wave hello to the driver to say, he, he, he's here, he's coming soon. She was having an ordinary day. She was doing that in support of her husband who had a tough job and now a dangerous job. And she's killed so, so brutally. It is unforgivable. And what was it like for Justice Watson? I mean, he was he was there. How did he survive without any major injuries? Because of the position he was in in the apartment, the construction of the apartment, and, and no doubt how the bomb on that occasion was packed. 
Pearl took the full force of it. What a horrific day for him. Horrific day. I think there's footage of him being escorted around the scene by the police at some stage and he, to me, he looks um, in complete shock. Um, yeah, he, he was brave to even be there. But family members of victims often need so deeply to have some sort of experience of what their loved one has gone through and brave police must let them have that experience. You have to sit with them in their grief. I'm just speculating, but I hope Justice Watson got some benefit out of that. Did Justice Watson go back to work after that? Absolutely. Incredibly brave. Incredibly brave. Determined. Professional. Warwick's latest bombing seems to have had um, that hideous effect on his ego about him being successful and about him living out the life of a successful psychopath. So he increases his abuse of Andrea. He extends it to Judy, uh, her sister, and that is how the rest of 1984 continues. Living in unimaginable terror, Andrea decided to flee Sydney and try to start a new life elsewhere, where her ex-husband couldn't find her. That was the catalyst for the final two acts of evil. By February 1985, Andrea had... I think she'd had enough anyway of course, but she decided to put a plan into action and she decided to move out of Sydney and take Trudy to another location secretly, so without Warwick knowing and with only a very close group of people knowing because her fear and terror and uh, her what is by then a full knowledge that these crimes uh, Warwick's crimes had, you know, fully hit her and she is sick of the abuse and the domestic violence and him turning up and breaking in unexpectedly and she does the right thing. She makes a plan, a clever plan, to, to move away. She really relies heavily on her sister Judy. They were close but had become so much closer because of this despair. Judy is a, a member of the Jehovah's Witness temple at Linnea. And whilst Andrea wasn't a member, Judy looks to her friends of that congregation and they, they come to call to help her and her sister move away. And a, a group of beautiful people help and they help by packing Andrea's possessions, arranging removalist truck, finding another location up the coast. They also agree not to tell anyone else so it's a select few of the congregation and Judy. On the day that they have arranged the move, Warwick turns up 
Now, if that's not an indication that he's watching her, that he's stalking her, uh, I don't know what is. They even have to make a panic call to the removalist truck to say, don't come now, it, it was about to arrive, because they, they still thought Warwick might, might be naive about what was actually happening. I've got to admire their efforts. That's how much heart they're putting into securing Andrea and Trudy's safety. Though, for whatever reason, maybe for Warwick to go back to his dark little spying hole down the street, he does leave um, without taking Trudy. And the removalist truck turns up and takes Andrea and Trudy to safety. Though, um, it was terrific that Warwick didn't actually follow them all the way because we then go into a series of uh, aggressive moves by him, some deceptive moves where he pretends to be someone else, approaching various members of the Linnea Jehovah's Witness congregation, asking firstly where Judy is innocently, presenting himself innocently, I'm, a, you know, I'm only looking for the sister, not the wife that I'm doing these hateful things to. So under that, um, but even that didn't work. And the congregation didn't tell Warwick what they had done or where Andrea had been relocated. So on that day, being the 9th of February 1985, where Andrea makes a successful escape with Trudy, and when, as I've said, Warwick turns up, clearly because he's been watching her movements, stalking her, there is an exchange between Andrea and Warwick where Andrea says that her solicitor, Gary Watts, is a very good solicitor and is going to enforce these particular orders that Andrea wants around the control of access to Trudy and property. She specifically names him because he's done the right thing by her and she thinks mentioning his name and that his solicitor will make Warwick kowtow, if I may use that word, to, um, to, to think that she has that solid protection there. Warwick uses that information to locate the house where he thinks Gary Watts lives, a house at North Mead, and a bomb is found at that location the very next day, the 10th of February 1985. So the bomb is found in a car. However, it turned out that that car didn't belong to Gary Watts. So the owner of that car had a very lucky escape, as we know now. There's not actually her solicitor, Mr Gary Watts, living at the house. He had sold the house and the new owners had rented it out. One of the tenants was Peter, and he owned a Tirana, which he loved to work on. That morning, he came out, the, the car's um, parked nose into the house, very near the, the garage door. The garage is connected to the house. He needs to work on the exhaust pipe. He puts the car key in, in the ignition, but in the split-second terrific decision, decides not to turn the engine on. He's realised that if he turns the engine on, intending to take it into the garage where he could work more on a flat surface, that the exhaust pipe itself would get hot and he couldn't work on it. So he leaves the key in the ignition, opens the boot first, and then opens the hood and finds a four kilogram bomb. 
wired to the engine under the hood. If he had turned the key of the ignition, that bomb, we proved, would have exploded and he would have died instantly and it would have taken the house out. It was four one kilo sticks of explosives and one kilo of that particular explosive would decimate seven cubic meters of solid rock. So whoever planted that bomb fully intended to cause as much harm as possible. Warwick intended to cause as much harm as possible. Peter the tenant obviously narrowly escaped death, but he wasn't the intended target. Warwick, we now know, thought that that was Gary Watts's house and Gary Watts's car and intended to kill Andrea's lawyer, Gary Watts. Absolutely. A lucky escape for both of them, obviously. And the other occupants of the house, there was more than one person living there. And more than one person who could have turned that key. Yes. An obvious question that comes to my mind at this point, Andrea is terrified, clearly. She, she knows that Warwick potentially is behind all of this. Why wasn't she being protected by the police, do you think? Well, she had protection. Uh, she always had the option whenever Warwick turned up to ring triple O. She sometimes didn't because he would come and go. But this is someone who should have 24-hour protection. I mean, maybe hindsight's a wonderful thing, but clearly she was in grave danger and anyone around her was in grave danger at this point. Whilst it seems logical, Andrea and Trudy should have had a 24-hour guard of at least one and a tactical team around the corner and all all those things that our hearts and minds would have loved to give her. She didn't get it. But... What the investigators did then and and, uh, the hierarchy of the police and the governments, in fact, is form a joint bomb strike force that was comprised of large numbers from the federal police, most particularly around explosive experts and a lot of very senior, experienced state detectives and other um, experts from this state. So that's where they put the resources and the money the the impact of the the news of the bomb in the car at North Bede on Andrea herself was that her trusted and very good solicitor Gary Watts decided he couldn't represent her anymore he because of his his fears for his own life and that of his family including other lawyers too who had played roles at that time in Andrea's case and again, you can't, you can't, certainly can't hold that against them. But these are the, you know, we talk about Andrea and she's absolutely a victim here, but so many others suffer along the way. And uh, we, we have to remember them, them as well and their, their, you know, their right to protect themselves. So Warwick essentially got what he wanted without actually murdering Gary Watts. He did, but for one thing, Justice G was sitting at court when the evidence about uh, the four kilos of explosive was found in the car. So G again gets an opportunity to focus in on this dysfunctional and reduced human being that Warwick was. But G, of course, is professional at all times. But uh, by that time, everyone 
felt Warwick was the man. It's it's understandable why Gary Watts decided it was time for him to step away from Andrea's case, but that must have been very difficult for Andrea. You know, she's in this awful, terrifying, never-ending fight with Warwick and she's just lost the person that was helping her through it because of something that Warwick had done. Yes, that, that's right. She did have a few months of peace. Um, remember, she started a new life elsewhere. She did have a few few months of peace before he struck again, though. And he struck again at the Jehovah's Witness congregation where he was trying to get information about where Andrea had gone. But there was a break-in first. That's right. When some of the congregation um, went to the temple on the 14th of July 1985, they noticed there was a broken window, glass had been broken, and they noticed a trail of what they thought might be blood leading into the body of the temple where they would have their gatherings. They did report that as a break and enter. They hadn't found anything had been stolen or just or any malicious damage, of course, other than the, the window. But they did point out the what they thought was a blood trail on the carpet and uh, where it led to there was also some blood on some cardboard storage boxes that they had. So that was noted for that report. But buildings are broken into all the time, most particularly then, uh, certainly in areas where there's a bit of ground around them. A break and enter was not seen as a as a link in any way to anything to do with the family court. What happened though a week later, on the twenty first of July, nineteen eighty five, when the specific congregation that Judy, that is Andrea's sister, belonged to, held their gathering. I think there was the gathering was of about 124 people. And just to put it in context, there was more than one Jehovah's Witness gathering or or congregation that would use that temple. But that was the specific day and time that Judy's congregation would be there. The congregation that had Judy's friends in it who had helped her sister move. The service is underway and there is a speaker on the podium and during the speaker talking to the congregation a bomb goes off right under that speaker. That, that speaker was Mr David Winder. He was blown out the top of the roof of the temple and landed in the yard. Have you got an idea of how large that explosive was? But he survived. Of course, he had injuries, he was hospitalised, but he's alive. Again, it's back to the how the explosive was packed. The greatest force was forward of the podium. And that is why Mr Graham Wikes died, because he was in at the front, sitting, listening to the speaker. Uh, the full force went to him in his row and the other people in in the row and all the rows back but he died. He was seated next to his wife 
Yes. Um, they were members of the congregation and an awful day for a couple that actually had nothing to do with the reason why that bomb was there. Yes, that's right. Um, the shock, the trauma, the injuries, the confusion, the broken eardrums, the uh, permanent physical injuries that so many of the congregations suffered, the permanent psychological damage that they suffered then and some still suffer today. The scale of that impact has to be acknowledged by everyone and uh, re always remembered. And, and they were innocents and they had only tried to help a young woman who, who was struggling and wanted to make a new life. Around 120 people, well over 100 people, were in the room at the time. The building was completely destroyed. Many taken to hospital and many still with lifelong injuries. Yes, it's, it was completely devastating. Incredible that only one person was killed. Incredible, yes. That hall was completely flattened, I understand. It might as well have been. It had no sides left. I think there's one wall and maybe a wall and a bit of a corner. Complete devastation. Despite the scale of devastation caused, the case remained unsolved for more than three decades. In the next episode, Pamela takes us inside the homicide strike force that finally cracked the case. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.